we've been going through a series for the last several weeks talking about identity and how we, what are, we aim for our identity to be as a church community here in the Nazareth area, and then from that, kind of what our identity gets to be as individuals, as children of God, as followers of Jesus. And uh, so I'll say it again, just for clarity's sake, our aim here is to be a gospel-centered family on mission in the Nazareth area. Okay, our, our goal is to be a gospel-centered family on mission, sent to the Nazareth area out of the Bethlehem church to, to live out, to tangibly live out the kingdom of God uh, among our friends and family and to invite them into it, to join us in that. And so the, the first couple weeks, if you remember, I talked about what it means to be gospel-centered, right? I talked about simply Jesus and how we want everything to be about him and, and to keep things somewhat simple from an, from an organizational standpoint. We just want it to be about Jesus. And then we spent the last couple weeks talking about kind of the gospel, the, the, the bad news that we are more sinful than we care to admit, but the good news that God loves us more than we might ever realize. And that in his love and in his compassion, we talked about the prodigal son last week, that story that, that God draws us back to himself and says, I'm not going to make you a slave, I'm not going to push you into legalism, but I want you to be a son or a daughter of mine. I want to bring you into the family of God. And so that, that idea of family started kind of to come into the picture. And so today, what I want to talk about is what it means to be a family, what it means to be a church community uh, at work in our community. And so one of the things I want to draw out of this, hopefully, is that it, it should be fun, okay? Like, I know, like, that probably needs to be said in a church environment, that, that being part of a church community, being part of a church family, being part of the family of God is meant to be life-giving and, and joyful and to bring f- the fullness of life that Jesus promised, and that living out our identity as children of God in the family of God actually makes that happen, and it actually makes us whole again. Being part of the family of God is actually a return to a sense of home that has been lost since the garden, since, since sin entered into humanity's presence. And so what we want to see is that it's not perfect yet, that there is no perfect church family, but, but that faith in the gospel and in the power of the Spirit at work in us gives us the grace to handle the imperfection that we still deal with, gives us mercy for other people, gives us transparency that leads to transformation. And honestly, what I believe is the peace of God on earth, kind of the shalom of God on earth, if you know that word. And so to work through this, we're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you have a phone or you've got a device you want to look at it, that's fine. Ephesians is about 80% of the way through the scriptures. It's to the right-hand side in the New Testament. Um, the city of Ephesus uh, that, that Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to was an important ancient city now on the west coast of Turkey, if you were to look at a map, uh, sits kind of close to the sea there. Uh, in its day, it was an important city of Rome, well, kind of about the time that Paul was writing this letter to them. He wrote it from imprisonment in Rome. He's writing this letter to his friends at the churches at Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was an important city with sea trade, with a, a huge theater and a stadium that you can read about in Acts 18 and 19. You can see the account of that there. Uh, so there's, there's art, there's drama, there's this, this huge temple to the goddess Artemis. Um, huge temple. It's, there's still, you know, the, the framework of it is still there. You can see pictures. It's unbelievably large. Um, it has this bustling city center. There's influences of Greek mythology, Roman philosophy, and other religion had started to kind of take root in Ephesus. So it's kind of this melting pot of different things, uh, including Judaism had taken root there. So there's a synagogue there that Paul preaches at. And what you read about in the book of Acts is that Paul has this dynamic ministry there. 
At one point, he spent almost three years living in Ephesus, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the victory of God through Jesus in the city of Ephesus. And then crazy things start happening during his time there and even when he's not there. Uh, people, people were touching like his handkerchief or particles of his clothing, and they were being healed. Like God's doing this miraculous thing through his clothing. Uh, at one point, you can read in Acts this crazy story about these, um, these seven kind of Jewish priests. Their, their, their dad was a priest, and these seven sons get together, and it sounds to me like they're kind of like borderline witch doctors, like they're doing this kind of like black magic type stuff, and they're trying to get a demon out of a guy. And, and in this story, it says that <clears throat> they weren't, obviously, if they're Jewish, they're not connected to Jesus, but they've tried everything. And so over this demon-possessed guy, they're like, well, maybe in the name of Jesus you should come out. Or maybe, maybe in the name of Paul. We've heard of Paul. He seems like a pretty powerful guy, he, you know, healing people through his handkerchief. Like, maybe in the name of Paul you should come out. And it says that the demon says to them, Jesus I know, Paul I know, I don't know who you are, and proceeds to beat the tar out of these seven guys so much so that they leave the house naked. They come running out. Like, this is crazy stuff that's happening in Ephesus because of the gospel going forward there. So this this demon possession thing happens, and then all the people, many people in Ephesus, are like, okay, something something is about this guy, Paul. Like, there's something about him, and there's something about this Jesus that he's preaching. We're gonna follow this now. We're not going to do this witchcraft anymore. And it says that they got together and they, and they took some of their ancient scrolls and their literature, and it says they burned it in a huge fire and as sort of a testament that they were done with that way of life. And it says it was worth 50,000 days wages. So $15 an hour, you're talking about like $5 million worth of, of these ancient scrolls that they burn in a testament to say, like, we're done with this old way of living. We want to follow Jesus. But now the result of that in Ephesus is when they say they're not going to follow Artemis anymore, this goddess, that they're not going to worship her in this temple anymore, the artisans of the town realize, well, they're not going to buy our idols that we're making anymore. They're not going to buy the things that we have been making to worship Artemis. So then they realize they're going to lose lots of money. So then they get mad at these Christians. They get mad at Paul's disciples who were there teaching people. And it says there's this massive riot that thousands of people come flooding out of the marketplace into the theater, where I think it said it could seat like 20,000 people. And so there's these thousands of people. It says that they got together and were chanting for hours. Some of them didn't even know why they were there, it says. That they're just chanting like, ah, okay. This is like mob mentality at its best. But they want to take down these guys who were proclaiming Jesus. In the midst of all of this, what we see is that churches start to grow, to grow. The church community starts to grow, and Jesus starts to be worshipped there in Ephesus. And from what we can gather, there was, there was a group of church communities, individual kind of pockets of church communities around the area and the city of Ephesus. Eventually, that Paul sends his protege, Timothy, to go and oversee. If you know the book of Timothy, you know that at that time, he's overseeing these churches in Ephesus. They didn't have buildings, they didn't have you know, church structure and organization. They were just families and groups of people meeting together, sharing a meal together, worshiping together, taking a collection. You see them taking collections for ministry to happen, for the poor to be cared for, um, and to celebrate baptism, sort of the ordinance of the church, to celebrate baptism and the Eucharist, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to take communion together. And we see that Paul calls them saints, He calls them holy people of God. He calls them God's family or God's building, God's church, because of their unity of message around the gospel, their unity of purpose of of making Jesus known to one another, their unity of belief. They were not a church. Can I just say this? They were not a church because of a building. The church is not a building. It's, It's a people. It's a collection of people. 
They were not a a church because of a denomination or because of a version of scripture that they held to because they didn't even have a Bible yet. Understand that. They had an Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament. They weren't arguing over King James Version. Like, they didn't have it. They were not a church because of their version of the Bible. They were a church because they were following simply Jesus together. Day to day, week in and week out, gathering regularly to worship him, to share meals together, to celebrate the good news of God's love for them through the normal, everyday happenings of life. It wasn't about just a Sunday service. Friends, as a gospel-centered family on mission here in the Nazareth area, I want you to know right from the beginning that, that our identity is found in being the people of God, in being the family of God here in this area, not in a building, not in a program, not in big events, and I hope to God not in our Sunday production, not in my sermons, not in our, our singing. Our identity is found in the gospel, in Jesus, and in our gathering together as a family. Now, I love gathering together on Sunday. The purpose of this is to remind one another of the gospel, to remind one another that we're not alone in this journey, that we do this together, and that the other six days of the week, what we learn on Sunday starts to take root because of the family that we're living it out with. Does that make sense? So it's not about a building. It never has been. Paul's writing this letter to them, calling them saints and holy people of God. They have no building. There's no program. There's no structure. He's writing to them as church communities. And in this letter of Ephesus, what we see is Paul does what he always does. Well, typically what he does. He takes three or three and a half chapters to set up and remind them who they are. He's writing this letter to them from a Roman prison saying, here's who you are. Here's who you are as children of God. Here's how you, here's how you, you know, are to love one another and be together. And you are holy people of God and you are a building of God. You are the body of Christ. He takes three chapters to lay all this out before he moves into behavior. Before he moves into, now you get to live like this. It's important to know that we believe the same thing, that, that what you believe leads to behavior. We don't ask for behavior before belief. It doesn't make sense. What we believe leads to behavior, and it's what Paul's going after here in Ephesians. So if you want to look at me at Ephesians 1, with all that kind of context there, we can see what, what Paul says to these Ephesian churches. Okay, so this is not just a letter to one church. This is a letter to a scattered group of communities in Ephesus. Uh, starting in verse 3, this is what he says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons or his daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, meaning in Jesus... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. So I know a lot of flowery words there. Paul always has these big introductions. What he's saying there is he's reminding them, you have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. And then God, in his wisdom, has decided to unite heaven and earth in Jesus. That's what he's going after there in verse 10, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. He's reminding them of the gospel, of who they are in Jesus. And then skip over to verse 15. Look what he says here. He says, For this reason, uh, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now this sounds like Romans, Romans 8 right here, if you know that. Listen to this. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Again, I know there's, there's a lot happening in that. I encourage you to read Ephesians this week after today because I'm going to blaze through it. But Paul is laying the foundation that he always lays. He's starting with the gospel that we've been talking about for weeks, that we are children of God, that the blessing of God has fallen on the people of Ephesus, and they are now part of his family. And then echoing Romans 8, like I said, that they've been given the spirit of God, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, is alive in them, invigorating their lives and giving them full life. But I want to point out two things that I think are critical for moving ahead as a family. What does it look like to be a gospel-centered family? Look at what he says in verse 10. He says, God has been doing these things to bring all things in heaven on earth together under one head, even Christ. What he's saying is that in Jesus, heaven and earth have been united again. That through a human being, heaven and earth have been united on earth again. And then in verse 22 and 23, he says, And God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. What Paul is driving home is the story of God's reclaiming of the earth for his glory that has been since moving in the same trajectory since the days of Noah. That, that God would use a new family to unite heaven and earth. That what the first Adam failed to do, the second Adam, who is Jesus, was successful in bringing about. That what the family of Noah, the families of, of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the tribes of Israel, the kings of Israel, what they failed to do was coming to fruition, was being restored in Jesus. That heaven and earth were being united now in Jesus, and then, now there's a new family coming about. A new family of sons and daughters of God who get to live this out on earth. The, I, again, I, I don't know if, that under, if you understand that, but this is what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, that that God has always used a family to make himself known from the very beginning. This is how he has always tried to extend his love to humanity, to invite them back into a relationship. That through a family, God would unite himself with humanity. He'd reunite heaven and earth again. It's what, if you study the Old Testament, it's what happened at the tabernacle, the kind of that roaming tent that would go through the desert with the Israelites. God's presence was there. Heaven and earth were being united around the family of Israel. When King Solomon built a temple, it says that God's glory resided there and heaven and earth were united there around the family of Israel and the world was supposed to come and worship God there. But over and over again, we see that humanity kept trying to put themselves on the throne, kept trying to make themselves God and eventually God's spirit, it says his glory leaves Israel and that, that heaven and earth union is continued to be broken until Jesus. So what happens in verse 10 is he's saying heaven and earth have been united finally in Jesus on earth through a human who is God on earth. And that through him, a new family has started on earth that we get to be a part of. These sons and daughters of God brought into this new family to unite 
heaven and earth. Friends, the church is primarily called to be a family, called to be a community of people who are united around the gospel, and they are the place where heaven and earth meet through the power of the Spirit at work in them. I'm going to talk about that again in a couple weeks, so if you want to understand a little bit more of what we we think about the Holy Spirit, uh, definitely come back in a couple weeks. But the, the main thing I want to draw out is that the trajectory that God has been working, the narrative that God has been telling ever since the days of Noah is that there's a new family and we're it. It started with Jesus, and it's been put into our hearts by his Holy Spirit, and we are adopted into God's family as his sons and daughters. So that's all in chapter 1. This is what Paul's trying to remind these churches in Ephesus. But then he goes on in chapter 2 to say, now this is what it means for you. This is what it means for your your daily lives. Uh, If you look at Ephesians 2, look at verses 8 to 10. Some of you, if you grew up in the church, you probably know some of these verses. Listen to what he says in 2.8. For it is by grace that you've been saved. Right? This is what we've been talking about. This is the gospel. Right? It's grace that has saved us through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not something that we've done, he's saying. Not by our works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What he's saying is that We are God's workmanship. We are God's poem is actually the word there. That God is writing this poem and we're it. And that by his grace he has called us into his family. But do you see what he he goes on from there to say? And now there are good works that he's prepared for you to do. There's good works that we get to do in this narrative that he's been writing. He's saying God's been writing all of it. He's been doing all of the work. And now we have work to do moving forward. Now, I can't get into it because I'm going to cover it next week in talking about our sentness. But... Here's what I want you to understand. When Jesus told his disciples how to pray, and we, and we have the Lord's Prayer, and he says, pray that, that God's kingdom would come on earth like it is in heaven. When he prays that, that God's glory would come on earth, that his will would be done on earth like it is in heaven. It wasn't meant to just be an empty prayer that we would say in liturgy and forget about. He was actually encouraging the disciples to pray for this, and what Paul is saying is now we get to go live it out. We get to live out this union of heaven and earth that are found in Jesus. That God's writing this narrative, he's writing this poem, and we get to be a part of it. And it's, it's a glorious thing to live as a sent one of God, carrying out his work around us. So come back next week, hear about our sentness. We're going to talk about how we're sent into our communities as we are. We don't all have to go overseas and be missionaries. Okay, you come back for that next week. Um, I'm going to preach a whole other sermon. All right, so... Paul goes on from this. He says, you're a family. He says, God's been working this. Now you get to be a part of this. He goes on from there to say that even though, even though you were dirty Gentile outsiders, you Ephesians, even though you were not Jewish you know, background people, not part of the original family of God, you have been united into God's family. So unless you are Jewish, we are part of this dirty outsiders camp. Like we have been brought into the family of of Israel, he's saying. And he says, this is a phenomenal verse. I I would encourage you to underline this in 310. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. He says, he says, you have been adopted into God's family. There is work for us to do. We have been united as Jews and Gentiles together. And then look at verse 310. He says, God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What's he talking about? 
Remember, again, the narrative up to this point. God and man were united in the garden. Remember, we talked about that early on, that God and man through Adam and Eve were, were, and through God were united in the garden, that heaven and earth were there. There's almost temple language. If you, if you study uh, Hebrew, it's almost temple language that heaven and earth are united. But the enemy of God sought to destroy that union. So he tempts Adam and Eve, and they choose into sin, and they choose to put themselves on the throne, and it breaks this heaven and earth connection. And ever since then, what happens immediately? Humanity has been murderous, backbiting, covetous, adulterous, drunk, in debt, killing one another, stealing from one another, hurting one another. It's, it's the enemy of God at work trying to divide humanity and trying to divide heaven and earth. And what Paul is saying in chapter 3, verse 10, is that now through the unification of heaven and earth in Jesus through the unification of Jews and Gentiles in the church, through the coming together of all people to make up the family of God, that now through all of that, he's saying that the unifying power of God is now coming against the divisive power of the enemy. That what the enemy tried to break apart all the way back in the beginning and what he was successful in doing, God has now overcome through the unifying love of Jesus. Paul is saying that our unity as a family, our unity as a church family, actually shows the power of God's love and unity to the power of the evil one and and runs face into it and says that the power of love is stronger than the power of division, that God is stronger and will be victorious. He has been victorious in Jesus and he will be victorious through all time. And this this is familiar to us, right? Because Jesus said what? He says, by your love, they'll know that you're my disciples. That sounds like a nice verse, like, but, but it's true. What Paul is saying is the same thing, is that by our love, we actually make known the power of God to the world around us. Paul says this in Colossians, that our unity actually shows to the world their destruction. And that's a crazy concept, but this is the power of the, unify, like the unifying love of God coming against the power of the division of the enemy. Friends, our call to be a family is in line with what God has always called his children to do. It's a call to influence culture. Our call as a family is to come up against the power of the enemy, to come up against the power of the divisive enemy. It's a call to influence culture, not to run away from it. That's a cult, okay? We're called to engage culture in our daily lives by being a family and showing the unifying power of Jesus. We've, we've been called to be creators, redeemers, reconcilers, transformers of culture, and proliferators of God's love in the world around us. Being a church or family is not about escaping it. It's about engaging it every day. It's about coming face to face with these powers and showing them what heaven and earth being united looks like. Again, we'll talk about this in the next couple weeks, but I really believe that being a family, a united family of God, is the best form of evangelism in the history of the world. Like, churches have always come up with programs of, like, how do we go and get people into the family of Jesus? How do we get people to come to our church? And he's like, he's saying it right here. It's what Jesus said. Love one another. Be together and live this out as a family. Churches try to come up with church growth strategies. What programs do we need to do to get people in the door? The Ephesians didn't have programs. They didn't even have doors to get in. Like, there was no church building. There was just a family of people gathered together around the gospel. And he says, when you do that, that just sh- sh- like shoves it down the enemy's throat that 
Division doesn't have to be, that we can be united, that there is such a love that motivates and changes and transforms our lives. It's meant to be the full life that Jesus promised. It's meant to be fun. Being part of a family is meant to bring joy. Now, you and I both know that being part of a family is not always joyful, is it? Right? Like, life is messy. I have, I have some great memories of uh, my family. Like I said last week, I love my family. They're great. Um, one of my, I was just like thinking of funny memories. And this one memory that popped in my head was me and my brother. He's a little bit younger than me. Uh, riding in our 1989 blue Subaru GL wagon. It was the first car we ever had that had electric windows. And you might not remember that, some of you. Non-electric windows. Anyway, uh, we were riding in a car, and we had our little WWF rubber figurines. Uh, they were, like, kind of bendy. I had, uh, uh, what's his name, Hulk Hogan. And we had, like, Jimmy the Superfly Snooker and, and all that. Anyway, so we have these characters, and we're riding in the car with these. And I don't know where we were going. We were probably driving my dad nuts. But I remember we were hanging them out the window and putting the electric window up so just their feet were inside of the car. And they were hanging outside of the windows and... We just thought it was like the funniest thing. Like we just had such a great time that day. I'll never forget it. You know, we had fun times swimming like in pools together. We had, we had great times when we would like actually like serve one another or serve my dad and mow the lawn or take care of neighbors and mow their lawn. Stuff. Like there were great times. However, being part of a family, you know, there were also times like I remember vividly like flipping over a Monopoly board and, and, and screaming at my brother like, I hate you. And, and my sister being like, oh my gosh, I'm babysitting, what is happening? And like trying to stop this, this massive fight that was about to start. I remember wrestling, like we were so angry wrestling so much, like we would break stuff, we would hurt one another. Like, now these are like juvenile things, right? Like we know, oh yeah, this is what kids do, this is what families do. But like the truth is, it gets even more difficult when we get older, right? When you start to bear in you the, 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 the scars of relationship, of, of hurts that have happened um, in your family, hurts that have happened in church, uh, I know many of you uh, have come through church breakups, church hurt, gossip, just the strife that happens inside of dysfunctional churches. So, like, Paul is no dummy, okay, when he says that we're called to be unified together. He had been through stuff with Barnabas, if you remember. He had been through stuff with Peter, where he had to confront Peter to his face about the gospel. Like, he's no dummy. He's not saying this is just some pie in the sky thing. He knows that it's tough to do, especially into a mix of Gentile and Jewish believers. This is like Jewish people and Muslims hanging out and, and learning how to be together. This is, this is like Republicans and Democrats being able to come together and, and be united, right? Like it seems impossible, does it not? I mean, and so this is what he's saying. He's like, it actually is possible through the power of Jesus. And what he says in chapter 3, look at chapter 3, verse 14. Look at what he says he's praying for for them. So all this point, he's been building up towards this idea of union. And he says, for this reason, uh, sorry, this is 314, I don't know if I said that. Uh, He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. 
Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Chapter 3 kind of ends this great, this thing that he's been moving towards the whole time, that we've been called to be united, and it's through love. And the only way you get love into your heart is by understanding the gospel. That's what he's praying for for them, that they would know the love of God so deeply that it would transform them in how they act towards the people around them. What he's been saying all along is that you are a building that is being built up with Jesus as the foundation, that we are together coming up as this structure, that the Spirit inhabits it, and it's love that holds it together. It's love that, that is the glue that keeps it together. And he prays that we would have this love. He prays that we don't, this is what he prays in Colossians, this is what he prays in Philippians, it's what the Apostle John prays for, that they would know more and more of God's love in the gospel and that it would transform them and would drive them to have love for one another. He takes those first three chapters to lay all of that up and then he gets to chapter four and he says, listen, I'm calling Jews and Gentiles to love one another. I'm calling all Ephesians and all the churches to love one another. And then he moves back into like practical implications of that And he says, we can do this because there's one God. There is one Lord. There is one faith, one baptism, one Father who's overseeing all of this. In Galatians, he says, there's no longer any Jew or Greek. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. It's we're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, it's not to say that we're all like androgynous beings. Like he understands that we all have individual character traits. But he's saying we are all on an equal playing field. We've been brought into the family of God as sons and daughters of him. We actually get to be part of Abraham's family, the promise that we talked about weeks ago, that we are now this new family that gets to inherit the promised land that God had promised so long ago. Paul understands that unity is difficult. He understands that having love in our hearts is is difficult to produce on our own. But he knows that when we focus on the gospel, we realize that we are all in this together and that we have gifts that we get to use to bless one another. He goes on in chapter 4 to say, some of you have been called to be apostles, some have called to be prophets, evangelists, teachers, shepherds. Go and use that for the building up of the body. But again, how do we do that? What does it look like? How do we actually live that out? Or he goes on there in chapter 4 to say, this is, this is like churches love to preach about these things. He lists all these things that they shouldn't do. Like, you know, don't get drunk. Don't be envious. This is unbefitting to the people of God. Like churches love to preach on those things, but not on the first three chapters that they're loved by God. He says, we start to be able to do this because we believe the gospel. We start to be able to walk in the light because we realize light is possible to be walked in because Jesus did it and he inhabits us by his spirit. And again, it's grace-motivated obedience. We respond to what God has done in us in the gospel, and then we go and live in that, in the freedom of the gospel, saying, oh, I don't need to live in the dark anymore. I don't need to be drunk anymore. I don't need to be envious anymore, because God's promised me full life walking in the light. So all these things start to come out in chapter 4, behaviors, gifts that we're supposed to use towards one another. But I think sort of the, 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 the major emphasis here lands at the end of chapter 4. This is, this is, to me, is, is how a family does this together. This is how a family stays unified. Listen to what he says. Verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Gospel. Do you hear it? Just as in Christ God forgave you. And then he says in verse, uh, chapter 5. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. 
and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So he's saying, forgive one another like God forgave you, love one another like God loves you, and then look at the end of chapter 5, or verse 21. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So when you get into the, the rest of chapter 5 where he's talking about husband and wife relationships and, and work relationships and children, he's saying it's all under this idea of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Do you understand what he's saying there at the end of chapter 4? Do you want to know what it looks like to love one another? Do you want to know how to do this? He says, forgive one another the way Jesus forgave you. He says, the more you understand the gospel and how much you've been forgiven, you will start to forgive other people more quickly. He says, love people the way Jesus loves you and gave himself up for you. The more we understand the gospel and that we are loved by God, we start to be able to turn that love back out to the people around us. And it leads to mutual submission to one another. Like, you want to talk about a word that is anti-American? Submission to one another. Like, we hate that concept. That's the power of the enemy. That's the flesh saying, I will not submit to anyone. The gospel says you can. Jesus did already on your behalf. You can forgive. You can love because Jesus has done this for you already. Friends, this is what it looks like to be a family. To forgive one another. To love one another because we've been loved. And to submit to one another. The gospel gives us the freedom to do that. And when we believe that that's the full life that Jesus offered, we can move into that with power and authority. So what does this mean? What does this mean for normal life as a family, right? Like if we're saying like, oh great, Jim, that sounds like a nice vision for a church family, like loving, forgiving, mutually submitting. What does that mean? Look, I just try to write down like random examples. We will mess things up sometimes in large ways. We will hurt one another. It happened. We say dumb things. We, we make bad decisions sometimes. But because of the gospel, we can say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I wasn't believing my standing as an adopted son of God. And I acted in an area of disbelief and I used it against you and I hurt you. Please forgive me. And the other person can forgive us because they know their right standing is in God. That what they, their identity isn't from what this other person gives them. That their identity is from God and they can say, I forgive you. You're right. I don't need identity from you. I forgive you. And you move on together in mutual submission. It means when some, this is a silly example, right? It means when someone forgets to invite you to a party, right? Like lame example, but these things happen. You can forgive them because you know that you've been invited to the greatest party of all time in Jesus. You didn't need to be like your, your, your FOMO, like your fear of missing out. Like you, you know that you have been included in the greatest family and the greatest party ever in Jesus. And you can forgive that person. You don't even have to mention it. But maybe you do want to mention it. You can go to them and say, hey, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. You didn't invite me to this thing. That kind of hurts my feelings. And that person can say, yeah, you're right. That does kind of stink. I'm sorry. I wasn't thinking properly. I meant to include, whatever. Like, you can apologize because you know you're right standing in God. You can, you can serve others by raking their leaves. You can make them meals when they're sick. You can give resources to care for the poor to make ministry happen. As Jesus gave resources to us. This is what Paul's going after. It's what we've been given, we can give away. Being family means spending meals together. This is why we do community group with meals, because we think we're supposed to be together like a family. It means you can go to, to other people's kids' you know, soccer and football games. It means rejoicing with someone when they get a new job or they make a great piece of, of art or, or a comic strip or whatever it is. Like you, you can love people 
for who they are and you can celebrate with them. It means mourning with them when they mourn. It means being sad with them when they're sad and coming along and crying with them and saying, that stinks. I have no pithy Christian things to say. I just want to just to be with you and just to love you and walk with you through this. It means watching each other's kids so that husband and wife can go on a date and remember why they actually love each other in the first place, like without kids underfoot. Like this is what it means to be family. It means fixing someone's leaky pipe because you've got a skill that they don't. Can I say this? It means the delegation of power or authority or creativity within a, within a, a congregation, within a Sunday service, because we're not threatened by one another's gifts. I think that's some of what Paul is going after in chapter 4 to say, some of you have been called to be apostles and teachers and prophets and evangelists and shepherds. Like, go live that out. You'll only be threatened. You're all on equal footing in the family of God. It means confronting the divisive powers of this world and of the enemy by loving one another, by forgiving one another in the gospel, by serving one another so much that the world can't help but look on and say, there's something different about that group of people. That looks like heaven on earth. I want in. That is evangelism to me. That is what it looks like to share the kingdom and invite people in. And I need to say this. I know some of you have been part of other churches where you would go and say, like, nothing's happening. I'm looking at my Bible. I'm not changing. I'm not being transformed. I know I'm not supposed to act this way anymore, but I still do. What do I do? Can I just tell you that being part of family helps bring transformation? Like when you get to live this out and share with somebody and say, hey, I've got an addiction. Can you help me walk through this? Can you give me strength to get through this? Can you help me? And when you confess sins, the other people don't go, get out. They say, yeah, I'm just as jacked up as you are. Welcome to the team. (laughs) Welcome to the family. Let me walk with you through this. That's the power of the gospel. It brings transformation in family. It's not just dead, empty religion or liturgy. It's a gospel-centered family that loves one another through thick and thin and forgives one another despite all the stuff that we do to mess things up. Can you imagine what it would look like if we lived like this? Do you imagine how different we would feel? Imagine how different Nazareth would be, how different the valley would be, how different the world would be if they felt that there was a place for them to be loved, a place for them to be forgiven, a place for them to be honest about who they are, a place for them to use their gifts and not be a threat to the pastor or to the leadership. Like, imagine how different that would be. I think we're onto something. I really do. I think this is the power of the gospel at work in the family of God. It's what God has always wanted to see is heaven and earth united in a group of people and spread to the world around them. So I'd ask you to join us in this. Continue to be part of this. Be part of a community group. In a couple weeks, we're going to have a get-together where we get to invite you guys to that if you're interested in a group to check it out, to hang out together and to ask more questions about what it looks like to be part of family. But I'd ask you to just to keep being here and soaking in this and thinking about how your life might be different if you really believed the gospel and really wanted to live it out as a family on mission. Would you pray with me?